Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, we're going to be out in the world soon. Really soon. (laughs) We're going to escape from the studio. The weekend immediately after this episode comes out, we will be at convention days in Seneca Falls, New York. Yeah, we're going to do a live show there about Frederick Douglass. And that is going to be on July the 16th. This is 2017. Mm-hmm. That's the year that we are in right now. Correct. And if you would like, if you would like details, you can go to conventiondays.com for the whole schedule, including when and where our show will be. Yeah, there's a lot of great programming at convention days. A so lot of cool stuff. Yes. So now do you want to get into the episode? I do. Uh, last year, after we did our episode about James Webb and the James Webb Space Telescope, for which I have deep fondness, uh, we got a lovely email mentioning that Hugh Dryden is another figure in NASA's history that would really be worth talking about. But the best part is that that email actually came from none other than NASA's chief historian, Bill Barry. Yes. <laughs> it's always cool when you get an email from the person that is the actual bona fide expert on something. Yeah. So it really seemed like it would be a wasted opportunity not to ask Bill to come on the podcast and talk about it himself directly. So that is exactly what Holly did, and he very kindly agreed. And today we have that conversation. And of course, Bill was 100% correct. Hugh Dryden is a really impressive figure in NASA history, but he was just a surprising and inspiring person in general. But uh, we can say all of that, but it's really better if we just let Bill tell you all about it. Bill Berry, who is NASA's chief historian here on the line. And we are going to talk about Hugh Dryden, but before we get into Dryden's story and his legacy, I have to ask, how does one become a NASA historian? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, um, being an aerospace history geek helps a real a real lot. Um, but uh, also luck plays a really big factor. Um, there are actually only seven people who are historians who work for NASA uh, two of them here at headquarters and the other five scattered around the agency in various spots. So, um, you not only have to, you know, be qualified for it, but you have to wait for the magic fairy dust to land on you at the same time. So one of those spots opens up. I was going to say, I can't imagine that's a high turnover job. I think if you get it, you probably love it. Uh, well, the, there have been six chief historians so far in the history of NASA. So since 1959. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, it tends to be a long tenure job. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're all oh. pretty happy with the job. That's perfect. Uh, so now we can transition over to, uh, Hugh Dryden's story. And first, uh, you had actually mentioned him to me when you first emailed us. And I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, what makes Hugh Dryden an important part of history? Uh, well, I really enjoyed the episode, uh, that, uh, you guys did on, uh, Jim Webb. And, but as I was listening to it, I, you, you mentioned Hugh Dryden kind of just in passing and, and it's kind of a, um, character that didn't seem all that important to the story, but he, he really is critical to the whole, uh, history of aerospace, uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, in a lot of ways, Dryden's sort of the Forrest Gump of, uh, aerospace history. Um, he's, he's in all the pictures. Oftentimes, in his case, he would be in a back row hiding someplace, but, uh, but he was a major force behind, uh, all the federally sponsored research on flight in, in the 20th century and, and had a huge impact on making NASA what it is. So when you first reached out to me, you also called, uh, Dryden much overlooked. And I wonder why you think there hasn't really been a lot of spotlight shined on his particular, uh, legacy. So, 
there are really two things that I think drive uh, the issue on on why Hugh Dryden is overlooked by history. Um, one is uh, himself, and one is the timing of his death. Um, he was very much an introvert, very self confident, but also you know quiet and self effacing. And uh, a lot of this traces back to his religious views, I think, uh, where he didn't uh, believe in promoting himself. Um, interestingly, he could be he really could be very quite sociable. And he was very effective at dealing with people, um, and in fact, he was uh, so effective at sort of hiding things about himself that most people didn't know he was a teetotaler. Uh, so he'd go to he'd go to these events, you know, parties and events and things, and he'd always go over and have a quiet word with the bartender at the beginning and say, you know, give me a highball glass full of ice and water and just keep refilling it from time to time. So he was drinking water uh, the whole time and nobody realized it. So uh, an interesting guy. Um, and the other thing, of course, is, is he dies in, in December 1965. Um, and that's before all the big things happen at NASA. You know, NASA achieves the goal of landing a man on the moon in a decade. And um, uh, most of the sort of retelling of the story of, you know, how we got to the moon happens after you know, 1969. And he wasn't around to, to sort of talk about his part or to be interviewed and things like that. So, so his kind of really critical role in that sort of gets left behind because, you know, there was no one there to really tell his story. And, and by the time they started asking questions, he had been gone for four or five years. So, um, he did play an incredibly crucial role behind the scenes, but, uh, um, not well recognized in part because he didn't push his own story and, uh, also, um, in part because he just wasn't there to tell it when the time came. And, uh, his life story really started out pretty humbly, but then he excelled so much academically that it kind of catapulted him into being the person that eventually had this impact. Will you tell us a little bit about his early life? Yeah, I, Dryden is really the, the classic American story of you know, a kid from, you know, out of nowhere, achieves great things in his life and and um, and, and, and has a huge impact. Uh, he, he was born July 2nd, uh, 1898, uh, just before the turn of the century there in uh, Pocomoke City in rural southern Maryland uh, from a not particularly distinguished family. The, the Drydens were, you know, merchants mostly. Um, but uh, he was reading by the age of four and... Um, um, about that time, his father's business went went bust in the 1907 um, um, recession in the United States. Uh, so the family moves to Baltimore, and his father, who had been a school teacher for a while and then a shopkeeper, winds up working as a tram conductor in Baltimore uh, for the rest of his life, uh, barely kind of squeaking by a, a living for the family. But Dryden himself is uh, uh, recognized for you know his early academic achievements and, and moved quickly through school. Um, and he was around for some interesting things. So the, the first airplane flight over the city of Baltimore where he lived was on November 7th, 1910. And like most of the rest of the city, Dryden was out there to watch it. Um, and he was in school at the time. And, and he wrote a paper about it. And in fact, the paper he wrote was about why uh, airships or, you know, dirigibles or blimps, uh, why those were better than airplanes. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and he got an F on the paper, by the way. Um, but curiously enough, actually, he was right about most of the, his observations. Uh, you know, as a young man, he saw that, you know, uh, planes were not very reliable. They couldn't fly for very long. They were very fragile and would break easily. Uh, and uh, But he's hooked on aviation, and he winds up actually solving most of the problems that he identified in that first paper in 1910 uh, as he's working on uh, aer, you know, aeronautics research in the, in the 20s and 30s. 
So anyway, so he graduates from uh, high school in three years at the age of 14. So he, he rushes through school there. He's number one in his class. Um, he has no prospect for going to college, but a number of his teachers from, um, from high school uh, find a scholarship for him and uh, get him to Johns Hopkins. And so he goes to Johns Hopkins, which happens to be in Baltimore, so he can live at home and live cheaply. Um, and uh, again, he finishes in three years, uh, you know, four-year course at college in physics, uh, graduates at the top of his class, and then moves into a, right into the master's program and then a PhD. Um, and he finishes his PhD at the age of 20, the youngest uh, PhD in Johns Hopkins history. And uh, and he wrote his, his dissertation on basically supersonic uh, flight, I know the physical principles behind supersonic flight. And this is when airplanes were going just barely over a hundred miles an hour. So, uh, pretty amazing uh, guy to be seeing that far ahead into the future and, and achieving the academic things and, and doing so from a you know, very modest background. He seems so much like the perfect combination of, uh, inherent intellect and talent and like hard work. That it kind of is the perfect recipe, right, for him to achieve. I mean, I can't imagine getting a PhD at twenty. That's a lot of work. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it took me a lot longer to do that myself. <laughs> I think it takes almost every everybody a lot longer. Uh, yeah, he's he's amazing. That's really astonishing. Um, and one of his professors, Joseph Ames, really played a large role in Dryden's life. Uh, would you talk a little bit about their relationship and how Dryden eventually ended up with a job in aerodynamics at the National Bureau of Standards? Sure. Uh, Joseph Ames was, of course, uh, not as well known now, but he was, he was a titan in physics research in, in the early 20th century. Um, he wound up, he was the head of the Department of Physics at Johns Hopkins, uh, when, when Dryden first showed up there. Uh, but later he became the president of Johns Hopkins University. And, uh, also for most of that time, uh, he was the chairman of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, um, which was, um, the organization founded in 1950. And it eventually becomes NASA, the basis of NASA in 1958. Um, but uh, as a chairman of the committee, um, he basically controlled the group that made decisions about you know what research that NACA would would perform and kind of what directions they were going, and did a lot of the you know political work in Washington D.C. to uh, make sure that NACA had the funding it needed to do things. So. Ames takes Dryden under his wing when he shows up as a master's student. You know, it's clear that Dryden is extremely gifted and talented, but also very young. Um, and um, um, because Ames is well-connected in the Washington, D.C. area, he's able to put uh, um, Dryden in a job at the National Bureau of Standards. Dryden just, just got married about then and had a um, you know a wife to take care of, didn't have a whole lot of job prospects. Um, and so World War One is still going on at the time, and, and uh, Ames puts um, Dryden at the National Bureau of Standards, uh, originally doing sort of basic science, you know, physics research work, but uh, um, quickly the Bureau of Standards decides to establish an aerodynamics section, and Dryden at the age of 22 becomes the first chief of the aerodynamics section at the National Bureau of Standards. Um, and, and the National Bureau of Standards had its own wind tunnels and did a lot of uh, research work uh, in, in that, you know, in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and uh, Ames now had, you know, Professor Ames now had a, a inside guy that he knows at the National Bureau of Standards, uh, with these wind tunnels, and so he starts funneling NACA research you know, projects toward uh, toward Dryden. And Dryden does a lot of really important work for for NACA uh, while at the National Bureau of Standards. Um, uh, while he's at National Bureau of Standards, he shows uh, not only an ability to you know, be a brilliant thinker about things, but he's also really good with people. 
and uh, he rises quickly to you know from the uh, chief of the aerodynamics section to a number of other responsible positions in the bureau, um, and eventually uh, is the deputy head by the by the end of World War II. Um, and in the process, he establishes an international scientific reputation for himself. Um, he, not not just for being a smart guy who can think theoretically, but also someone who can do practical things. Like um, uh, one of the problems they had was the was uh, the wind tunnels. The accuracy of replicability of data from wind, various wind tunnels around the country was was hard to um, to sync up. There were you know, they get discrepancies in the same tests in different tunnels. Uh, Dryden figured out that uh, it might well be um, the turbulence, different kind, different levels of turbulence in different tunnels, and so he actually helps invent this thing called the hot wire anemometer, which is a way to, to measure the actual wind uh, velocity and direction uh, at various points in the tunnel with, with extreme precision. Uh, and he proves with that hot wire anemometer that uh, most of the discrepancies were caused by wind tunnels that had. Uh, you know, non non-linear flow that that were turbulent, uh, so he sort of solves the whole problem with with wind tunnels being undependable, um, and then goes on to, to build these really um, high fidelity wind tunnels at National Bureau of Standards that that he uses to prove a bunch of things, like uh, for example the 1907 theory uh, by the German um, uh, Ludwig Prontl, um, who proposed this theory about how boundary layer flows around wings. Uh, and it was very uh, controversial theory, but uh, in the, these highly accurate wind tunnels, uh, Dryden proves that the theory is actually true, and that's a, that becomes a major benchmark in aviation theory, and and, and puts uh, Dryden's name on the map, at least among people who are in the field of aerodynamics around the world. Listening to Bill talk about Hugh Dryden's accelerated academic achievement made me feel like a total underachiever. Uh, probably most people, because it was transcended normal human development. I yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like I was an overachiever, and that still puts my me overachievement too. And yet to shame. I was like, was I lying down too much? What happened? Uh, so while we ruminate on that, we're going to pause and have a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. So now let's get back to NASA Chief Historian Bill Berry talking about Hugh Dryden, including some really surprising projects he was involved in during World War II. Uh, you referenced briefly World War II and where Dryden had ended up by the time that had all played out. But will you talk a little bit more about how uh, the Second World War impacted his life? Well, World War II was a, a dominant factor in, in just about anybody's life who lived through it, I suspect. But, uh, Dryden, uh, being in a position of, um, you know, responsibility for research work, uh, was, was particularly involved and, in, and it made a big impact on him. And, and he had subsequently a big impact on, on scientific work in the war. Of course, many people in the business and, you know, aeronautics business saw, you know, what was coming. Uh, you know, Germans were doing a lot of research and they were concerned about, um, you know, competing with uh, the Germans and, and other countries. So, uh, uh, research efforts in the U.S. picked up quite a bit in the late 1930s and, and, uh, Dryden was involved in that. One of the projects he was involved in at the National Bureau of Standards was, uh, designing the fins that on the back of, uh, bombs that get dropped out of airplanes. So, you know, he helped standardize those fins and that design was actually, uh, uh, used throughout the war. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the Office of Scientific Research and Development, uh, led by Vannevar Bush, um, saw Dryden as a, as a key person, not only as a, a person who had, you know, good 
scientific chops, but also who could manage a good project. Um, and so they put him in charge of this um, wacky idea to build a bomb that could find its way to its target all by itself. Um, uh, they called it a, a guided glide bomb. It was really the first sort of smart weapon that was ever invented. Um, and it was known as BAT, B-A-T. Um, and um, it was designed, it used an analog computer to, uh, um, um, and a radar return signal to, to identify its target, um, steer itself to the target, and make sure it hit the target. Um, it, it took a couple of years, but uh, but Dryden actually led that project to completion and and, um, and deployment, and actually used the the bat, uh, particularly in the Pacific theater in the last year of the war. And it took out a lot of Japanese ships and, as well as land targets, so it had a had a substantial impact on the war and um, and contributed to Dryden being recognized at the end of the war with the Medal of Freedom and a, and a number of other. Um, number of other things. Another aspect of the war for Dryden was that uh, he was well known before this point uh, by Theodore von Karman. And and Karman had gotten involved with the, the Army Air Forces as uh, uh, an advisor to them. And uh, when they set up the Air Force Army Air Force Scientific Advisory Group, Karman uh, turns to Dryden and asks him to be the deputy director of, of the group. And that group um, gets called in at the end of World War II in the spring of 1945 to go to Europe and do an assessment of um, aeronautics research across Europe. And uh, Dryden winds up in a uniform pre- pretending he's a Army Air Force colonel. Um, Carmen gets to be a general. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and and they wander around Europe debriefing people like uh, Werner von Braun and other folks like that uh, about things. Uh, the, the group took most of a year to do its work uh, Dryden went on the first trip to Europe, and then he came back to Washington, and uh, he winds up being the editor of the of the research project that's being done. Uh, there are thirty three odd papers written. Um, Dryden wrote several of them himself, um, and the report that comes out of this uh, was entitled "Toward New Horizons," um, and it was really the seminal study that laid out the plans for where the, not just the Air Force but the United States in general would go in scientific research in the post-war era and it was hugely influential and, and Dryden was you know not only there at the creation but he helped write write part of that report so uh, critical and setting the agenda for where um, U.S. aerospace research would go after the war. That is sort of an astonishing adventure story that ties in with the science it is so compelling. Yeah I've I, like I said, I could talk forever. So, <laughs> so if, if I'm going too long, let me know. No way. Are you kidding? You're like a font of knowledge that's fantastic and excellent. Uh, and so when did Dryden leave the National Bureau of Standards and finally actually become part of the NACA? Uh, well, of course, at National Bureau of Standards, of course, uh, Professor Ames is running the NACA, uh, running the committee that runs the NACA for um, – uh, for most of this period uh, in the 20s and 30s and into the war. Um, and um, so Dryden is actually doing research for the NACA that's you know funded by the NACA, but he's doing it at the National Bureau of Standards. Uh, so he's really been working for the NACA for quite a while. There are a number of really important NACA reports uh, that were written during that time that you know, that Dryden was the author of. Um, but uh, George Lewis, the guy who did, who ran the day-to-day operation of, um, 
of the NACA. So you had um, Ames running the committee that oversaw the NACA, but but George Lewis is the guy who ran it. Uh, George had been a director basically from the beginning, and and by the end of World War II, he had been the director for 28 years. Um, he really basically worked himself to death. Um, and uh, by the end of the war, he's, he retires um, in around 1946 and dies within a year of when he retires. Um, and it was pretty clear that they needed somebody, you know, of a similar character and caliber to take over the place. And, and Dryden was sort of the clear choice for director. So uh, he becomes the director in 1947. Um, and uh, based on, what he knew from that uh, report that he wrote, the Toward New Horizons report, uh, he mm-hmm. immediately he immediately starts changing the direction of the NACA from just being an aeronautics research agency to to doing um, basically aerospace research. Um, and in fact, the, within about two weeks of when he got on the job, is one of the first things he does is he gets on a train and goes across the country to uh, Edwards Air Force Base, or what's now Edwards Air Force Base, uh, to visit the NACA people. That were out there working on the X1 project, you know, the first plane to go supersonic. It was yeah. a, that was a joint project. Um, you know, the Air Force and NACA worked on it together. Um, and, um, uh, the NACA folks were out there on temporary duty basically from, uh, their, their normal post at Langley, uh, Research Center in, in Virginia. Um, Dryden goes out there to see how things are going, check out the scene. And when he comes back, he signs an order that basically makes uh, that center, those folks out there permanently assigned out in California and creates the, the flight, high speed flight research center, um, out in California. And that's, it's now the Armstrong flight research center, but, uh, uh, that thing date, the formalization of that as a, as a, as a major research facility for, for, um, the NACA and later NASA actually dates the, the Dryden's first couple weeks in office. So, uh, and, and after that, he basically, you know, without, without any change in the mandate of the NACA, starts doing more and more, uh, rocket research and space related research, uh, so that by the time of the mid 1950s, um, the NACA is doing supersonic study, hypersonic work and work on reentry vehicles from space, um, and early sorts of things. He basically turned the NACA into a, into a semi space agency without ever asking anybody's permission to do so. <laughs> But we owe him such a debt of gratitude for that. Well, uh, exactly. It's astonishing. Uh, and I'm glad that you brought him up because I hadn't realized any of that until you had sent over some, some information about him. And I was like, wait, how, how is nobody talking about this? So I'm so glad you're here to do so. Um, when the NACA became NASA, how did Dryden's role evolve within the organization? Uh, well, that's a really interesting one. Um, of course, in 1957, October 4th, the Soviets launched the first satellite around the Earth, and that's kind of a surprise to everybody. Um, and a lot of people get upset about it. Um, uh, probably more troubling is that within a month in early November 1957, they launched a second satellite, and it's got a dog on board, uh, and that got everybody's attention. Um, and suddenly there's a lot of, as happens here in Washington, D.C. from time to time, there's a lot of recrimination about who's to blame for various things, and um, uh, attention immediately falls on um, the NACA for not being more of a space agency, even though they really weren't authorized to be a space agency. Uh, so, so Dryden kind of gets some blame for not anticipating uh, Sputnik, although he actually had been, because he'd been you know, redirecting the agency all along. Um, but, uh, probably more importantly, um, uh, Dryden was uh, kind of a straight shooter and, um, uh, uh, you know, while an introvert and quiet and polite, um, he also 
made it clear when he didn't agree with people necessarily. So apparently he didn't make many friends on Capitol Hill when they called him up there to, to complain to him about, um, about the job he did. So, uh, several members of Congress made it known that they would not really like Mr. Dryden to be, um, head of the, this new organization, whatever it was going to be. And the Eisenhower administration had been considering just make, taking the NACA and turning it into NASA and, and leaving Dryden at the head of it. But it was pretty clear that politically that wasn't going to fly. So they turned to, uh, a guy named T. Keith Glennon. Uh, Dr. Glennon was, uh, at that time, he had, he had done it, had a number of high government jobs, worked in the atomic energy business, um, and, uh, was the, in 1958, the president of Case Institute of Technology, what's, what's now Case Western Reserve University. So, um, he was a good guy. Uh, interestingly enough, Glennon, when he agreed to take the job, did it only on the condition that Dryden stayed as his number two. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dryden actually was being offered a, a position as a professor at MIT, and uh, he, he turned down the MIT job and agreed to stay because Glennon asked him to because he felt it was his duty to stay on uh, and help him out. And, and it was a wise choice by by Glennon because uh, Dryden knew the nuts and bolts of of the whole NACA organization and was really good at uh, at you know juggling lots of things that were happening. And this new organization, NASA, was not only the NACA but it had all these other pieces being bolted on like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and parts of the Army Ballistic Missile Agency and the Naval Research Lab that all become part of NASA. Um, and Dryden's the guy who made all that sort of background stuff uh, work. Webb was, uh, or, or Glennon was, uh, you know, the front guy who did all the political uh, wheeling and dealing and and uh, managed the political relations in, inside uh, the government and, and it was sort of the spokesman for the agency. But, but Dryden was the behind-the-scenes guy who, you know, dealt with the day-to-day operations of the organization and, and making sure it actually functioned effectively. Interesting, too, that uh, the, the, of course, Eisenhower uh, runs out, his term runs out, and, uh, and President Kennedy gets elected, and Kennedy goes looking for a, a new administrator for NASA, and he finally selects Jim Webb. And and Jim Webb becomes, becomes the director of NASA in 1961, and he agrees to become NASA administrator, again, only if Dryden stays on. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of the conditions he, he applied to that was that uh, the Dryden stay on as uh, as his deputy and and Dryden at at that point um shortly after that anyway in the fall of 1961 Dryden's actually diagnosed with cancer um and uh, but he continues to work in fact he worked until 1965 when he finally succumbed to the cancer um and he, he worked uh, at that point they were working 6-day schedules because of the race to get to the moon after that point um and uh and so Dryden was in the, in the office 6 days a week um and dealing with cancer and uh um a, a phenomenally um, focused and driven person shaped the U.S. aerospace program even before the United States had an aerospace program. We are going to talk a little bit more about the perhaps surprising aspect of Dryden's personal life. But first, let's pause for a quick sponsor break. All right, let's cut to the conclusion of my interview with NASA's chief historian, Bill Berry, and we'll kick this segment off talking about Hugh Dryden's religious life. And I imagine it will surprise people. You mentioned it a little bit earlier at the beginning of our talk, 
that Dryden was religious, uh, but I bet it would probably surprise people to know that he actually held a Methodist preacher's license. Um, will you talk a little bit about his religious background and how that factored into his life and career? Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, aspect that I think people these days would find very surprising. But uh, in fact, uh, you know, Dryden, uh, Dryden's faith was really a, a central part of his life. Um, um, you know, he was, in fact, his name, uh, Hugh, uh, Hugh Latimer, you know, Hugh Latimer was the name of his first and middle name, uh, were the names of a, a Methodist preacher in a town where his parents were when he was born. And so he was actually named after another Methodist minister. Um, so, uh, that, it's an important part of his young life. Uh, he met his wife Libby at uh, a church event, and uh, and uh, his uh, you know, religious faith and and stuff was really important. I mentioned that he was working six day weeks at at uh, NASA, particularly in in the early sixties. Uh, in fact, uh, unlike uh, God of the Bible, he didn't rest on the seventh day. <laughs> He, he he actually spent a lot of Sundays out preaching at local churches. So he'd you know work at NASA six days a week, and then on Sundays he'd go preach. And uh, I, I actually found this out look, going through his letters. Um, they, they, he donated his uh, his personal papers to uh, Johns Hopkins University. Uh, so I was up at Johns Hopkins looking for something else about um, Dryden's work on uh, our first agreement with the the Soviet Union. Actually, Dryden was in the the key negotiator of that. Um, and, uh, and I kept running across these, these letters that he had sent to various churches sending back their checks because he'd go give a, you know, preach a sermon, they'd send him a check for being the guest preacher and they'd send it back saying, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I, I really can't accept this money. Um, and if they, if they returned a check to him again, he'd donate it to a charity and send him a note saying, I donated to this charity. Thank you very much, <laughs> but I really can't accept the money. So <laughs> what, what an interesting guy. I, I, he was a guy who didn't see, Religious faith and science is as incompatible at all, uh, and, and no. that's a that's a really interesting perspective these days. It is, and I, I when you mentioned that he was working six days a week and then basically working on the seventh by preaching, that's a grueling schedule for someone who is not ill. So for someone that was battling cancer, like it's a testament to his incredible drive. Uh, he really, I, I, the more I read about uh, about Hugh Dryden, the more I, I feel. Completely, <laughs> completely inadequate because, because here's a guy who was, you know, uh, sick with cancer and dying and he's working seven days a week basically and, uh, and keeping the whole thing together. It's just unbelievable and an un- a brilliant mind and a nice guy on top of that from all, all reports. Um, I actually, um, his longtime secretary, um, we have an oral history from his, his longtime secretary and she writes about, uh, about uh, Dryden and uh, uh, you know what a nice guy he was and how polite he was to everybody, how nice he was to her. Uh, and he even writes about the, the NASA headquarters. Uh, there's a train track that runs through uh, south southwest DC, and and from Dryden's office you could see the the train track that went through. And um, one time the Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Circus Train is going through. DC on his track and he has a meeting with, with some senior official, according to a secretary. And he stops the meeting, steps out and grabs his secretary and says, come on in here. You got to see this. And they, they ah. basically stop the whole meeting. So I can watch the circus train go by. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, he, he comes across as, as just the sweetest guy um, you'd ever know. He is almost one of those people that uh, if someone were to write him as a fictional character, no one would believe. They would be like, no, that's too much. It's too much. <laughs> I, I, 
I have to admit, I sometimes wondered myself about that. But the more I read about it, and the more I, more research I do on him, the the more I find the uh, you know fascinating and interesting things like like those stories. Uh, you kind of referenced what a, a prescient thinker he was in many ways, and how he could see way ahead of what was going on in terms of current and contemporary science. How do you think Hugh Dryden would view today's NASA and its achievements, since he did miss all of the big sort of news headline type events? Well, uh, Dryden did live long enough to see the X-15 fly, which uh, that's a part of the story I, I haven't even touched on yet, but he was crucial to starting the X-15 project and 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 actually getting the Air Force and the Navy to, to come up with the money to make the X-15 project happen. Uh, but uh, but he'd actually get to see the X-15 fly, and uh, of course he didn't didn't last long enough to see the Apollo program uh, reach the moon. But I, I sort of imagine... Um, that Dryden would uh, respond to um, you know, the current state of NASA with sort of a his the wry enigmatic smile that you see in pictures of him quite frequently, uh, where he I think he'd be very proud of um, of what NASA had accomplished. Um, and of course, he'd attribute that the accomplishments to other people probably, but uh, but I think he'd be very proud of what happened. But it'd also be I think a little sad that. Uh, that you know we didn't um, uh, continue on at the same pace that uh, that we were in the, in the 60s because that it's clear from speeches that he gave and uh, and his writings that he really thought that uh, the the world had reached an inflection point uh, with the the space race and that that we were going to going to as a as a you know race uh, you know humans would you know get out to the moon and then get onto mars and uh, and that we would you know by this point in in time probably have a um you know, much more robust uh, uh, economy out in space. Uh, but again, I, I, I think he'd probably have that that sort of wry smile because he'd also, you know, having been a bureaucrat most of his life, realized that uh, you know things don't always turn out the way you plan, and uh, and uh, sometimes uh, you, know, you, you you know you you take what you get, and and you're happy with uh, with those things. So I I I, I think he'd be um, I think he'd be pretty happy with how things turned out. I wonder how he would react to really how much of a legacy he's left, even though things don't always have his name on them. Clearly, a lot of what has happened in the time since he's been gone has been due to the work he was doing when he was alive. Yeah, but I think that never really mattered to him. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so I I think he'd probably say, yeah, well, in in fact, in some ways, I think he'd probably internally see it as a success. You know, all these great things happened. I helped make them happen and nobody noticed. And isn't that good? really cannot thank Bill Berry enough for sharing his time and his knowledge with us. I am so thankful that he wrote to us because had he not, he maybe never would have come back to Hugh Dryden. And there's really no getting around what an important part of NASA his story is really is. And also just what a fascinating person he is in history. Yeah. Uh, so I'm so thankful and I feel so lucky that we got to have him on the show. You also have some listener mail for us. I do, and it's about roses. Yay! Uh, this is from our listener, Michaela. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I thoroughly enjoyed your recent episode on the history of roses. Not having a green thumb myself, I've always found roses beautiful, but never knew much about them. This is my aside. Roses are shockingly easy to grow. I don't think I have a green thumb, and I have a lot of roses growing at my house. 
Uh, that being said, I recently traveled to Portland, Oregon, and had the opportunity to visit the International Rose Test Garden there. If you are not familiar with it, I highly recommend a visit. It has more than 650 varieties of roses spanning over four acres. And while there, I was fascinated to learn that the Rose Garden was established during World War I as a safe haven for European hybrid roses that were endangered by the bombings during the war. I've copied a paragraph from the Parks Department website below, and that reads, quote, In 1915, Jesse A. Curry, rose hobbyist and Sunday editor of the Oregon Journal, convinced city officials to institute a rose test garden to serve as a safe haven during World War I for hybrid roses grown in Europe. Rose lovers feared that these unique plants would be destroyed in the bombings. The Park Bureau approved the idea in 1917, and by early 1918, hybridists from England began to send roses. In 1921, Florence Holmes Gerke, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, the landscape architect for the city of Portland, was charged with designing the International Rose Test Garden and the amphitheater. The garden was dedicated in June 1924. Curry was appointed as the garden's first rose curator and served in that capacity until his death in 1927. Uh, and she goes on to say the garden has plenty of historically significant roses, including an entire section of roses that were mentioned in Shakespeare's plays and named after his characters. I was delighted to discover that it is also home to some thoroughly modern creations, including roses that smell like grape soda, bubblegum, and creamsicle. There is a centennial celebration this summer, so if any of your listeners are in the area, I encourage them to visit, as it is a truly special place, and admission is free. Yay! I want everybody to go to that, and I want them to take me with. I have been to it once, but it was too early in the year for anything to be blooming, and it was one of those where we just stopped in just in case. Uh, and it, just in case it was, it was too early. <laughs> I had no idea it existed. And now I have a place that I have to go in Oregon. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's pretty exciting. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as missed in history. That means on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Pinterest, and on Tumblr. Uh, you can also visit us at our homepage, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find every single episode of the show that's ever existed as well as show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together. We have now consolidated show notes into the show page so it's a little simpler to navigate. Uh, you can also go to our parent site howstuffworks.com and type in anything you wish in the search bar including space history or roses or anything else. You'll come up with all kinds of stuff to look at. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 